Thompson. We were losing money hand over fist. I didn't sell any stock because I just didn't feel like it was right. You know, I didn't feel like that that uh, valuation was was justified. And so I kind of wrote it up to to uh, 54 bucks a share, and then the whole dot com crash hit. And uh, over the course of the next two or three years, the price went down to under two bucks per. So it was uh, an amazing roller coaster, very stressful. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Don Brown. Don, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. P.S. What a gorgeous place. We were going to do this online, and then randomly I saw that we live like half an hour from each other, and uh, I'm so glad this worked out. Yep, this is really convenient. So you came up here in 2016? Yes. And I, I, we don't have video rolling today, people, but we are up on the top of Park City Mountain, and it is, it is gorgeous. Don's got a great place up here. So, Don, you are one of the most successful software entrepreneurs in the Midwest. Can you give people like a little bit of background for, for maybe some of those high points that got you to this point? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, largely by accident. You know, I was in an MD-PhD program in biochemistry and had every intention of becoming a biomedical uh, researcher. You know, in Indiana, there's a big uh, pharmaceutical company called Eli Lilly. And so I figured I'd be working in a basement uh, lab, you know, trying to cure cancer or something. But along the way, I ended up switching the non-medical part of my studies over to computer science I got a graduate degree in that discipline and started a little software company while I was finishing up med school, you know, as a starving uh, student. And uh, I ended up uh, taking an unexpected detour into the enterprise software industry for uh, 30 years. I started a couple of companies that went uh, public. My most recent one grew to about 2,200 people. It was a publicly traded company called uh, Interactive Intelligence that was sold uh, to a big uh, California company in 2016 and kind of freed me to uh, get back into the life sciences. That's exciting. So uh, correct me here on timeline. Did you sell the first business to EDS? I, I, yes, I have to think for a second. Yeah, the, the first one was kind of uh, in the automotive finance area, and uh, we ended up selling that to uh, EDS and General Motors. And this is like Ross Perot EDS, right? Yes. You know, for people who don't, you know, for, for maybe younger people listening, I don't know if everybody realizes, like, what a force to be reckoned with EDS was back in the day. Oh, well, they, they really were. You know, and Ross uh, had a presidential run, I think it was probably the most successful uh, third-party candidate in, in modern history. And uh, so, yeah, they were, uh, you know, kind of an IBM sort of company in that era. Um, what, what was that experience like, going, going through it for the first time? Well, you know, I was completely naive. I didn't know anything about business. You know, I was this medical student. I got involved and started a little company. And so it was it was pretty heady stuff, you know, to have these big wigs from uh, Detroit come down to Indianapolis and look at our tiny little company. And it turned out that EDS had had a team of about 100 people trying to develop something uh, similar. But uh, the software industry is one where sometimes one person is better than a hundred, and uh, so uh, I didn't have to have meetings or ask any any questions. I was able to develop everything on my own, and so yeah, we sold the the company. I walked away with eight hundred thousand bucks that I thought was going to be enough to fund me the rest of my life, you know. And uh, very quickly realized that that money can uh, go pretty fast. How old were you? Oh, right around thirty years. Yeah. So it's mid eighties. You got. 800 bucks, 800 grand burning a hole in your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> Coming off that success, how did you decide what you wanted to do next? Well, you know, I learned uh, the wrong lesson from that success, which was I thought that it proved that I was just a genius. I had the Midas touch 
you know, and so obviously I would turn around and start another software company and, and do it again. And very quickly I learned I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. I started a company with some money, but no clear business plan or idea. And very quickly that 800,000 bucks, especially after paying taxes and having a wife who wanted to buy a, a home at uh, that point in a incredibly short period of time, I was broke and maxed out on credit cards and uh, spending sleepless nights wondering how I was going to make payroll. Yeah. What did you end up deciding on for the business model for that second one? Well, you know, the, the big lesson I learned in that company was that it's important to build solutions and not just tools. In that company, I took some work that I had done, some AI-related work from grad school. We tried to sell an expert system inference engine as a tool to companies. And it wasn't until we recast everything in the form of a help desk automation solution that we could sell using that technology, that things turned around. And ultimately, that company became the first software company in the state of Indiana ever to go public. What did you guys go public at, or what was the market cap peak, or do you remember any of those numbers? Well, I, I left shortly before the uh, IPO to start a, a yet a, another company. But uh, what I remember was that, that that company was public for three or four years and was sold to IBM for 200 million bucks back in kind of the, the mid-90s. Yeah. Um, tell us about the tough times. Tell us about like any like the gut-wrenching moments there when you realize, oh, maybe I don't have the Midas <laughs> test. Or how did you get through that? Well, you know, first of all, it's just admitting to yourself that maybe you're not quite as smart as you, you think you are. And really what saved us there, you know, we ran out of our uh, own money. I had a, a partner who had also come away from that previous company with a similar uh, amount. But uh, we ended up kind of swallowing our pride. We went to a local venture capital group. And we're really lucky that there was a partner there who was about our age and kind of rolled up his sleeves and said, I'll help you guys figure this out. And uh, really helped us uh, understand the difference between a tool and a solution. And as I said, it was, you know, really after suffering through that, that process and, you know, reformulating what we were doing, that things started to take off. And, and how do you define the difference yourself between the tool and solution? Well, you know, a solution is something that addresses a specific need, a specific business need, and where there's already a, a budget in place, you know, so that you walk in the door and you're not having to evangelize. You're not having to convince somebody that here's some neat new technology and you could use it to solve some problem that you have. Instead, you walk in with something where you know, people are already looking for a solution and it just doesn't require as much education. The whole sales process is much easier and, you know, generally organizations will pay more. So for entrepreneurs listening today who are saying, I think I'm solution, but like on the, on the dimmer switch here, maybe I'm closer to the tool. Maybe I'm any thoughts of like, what's a test? What can they ask themselves? CEOs, founders today listening, going, man, am I as much of a solution as I thought I was? Am I too far towards the tool side? What, what, how would you help them think about that? Well, I think one good litmus test is, can you explain the benefits of what you do in 30 seconds? You know, Can you just encapsulate the problem you're solving, the value you're, you're providing in kind of that classic elevator pitch? If you can't, you're probably not selling a solution. It's funny how so many of the most important answers I get, I, you know, this show is such a fun opportunity for me to learn from people. I have tons of respect for their performance and their achievements. And it is surprising to me how many of their most powerful answers are, are actually quite simple concepts, not necessarily easy, but are simple concepts. How many times have you talked to a friend or someone who's starting something and, or, or you meet someone new at a party and you're like, well, what does your company do? And they're like, well, it's kind of complicated. And they go into this rambling thing, yeah. whatever, you don't get the sense, well, those people, those people are destined for huge success. Right. It's, it's such an important ingredient because oftentimes, especially in a business setting, 
you you only get one shot and and it's often a very brief shot and so if you can't articulate what value you're providing what problem you're solving within a few seconds you're you're just not going to get somebody's attention so it really is so critical to be able to think through that you know and and to be able to articulate it i love it and and the name of that company was uh software artistry okay was that one run out of indiana as well yes okay yep so you, you get things figured out you becomes highly successful you're looking at round three now what's yeah. going through your head? Well, so, you know, just before the uh, IPO at the, that company, I realized I, either I uh, stay through the IPO and uh, continue to serve as CEO and I'm probably locked in for the next five years, or if I'm going to get out and do something again, do something else, now's the time. And, you know, by that point, I mean, venture capital is great, but of course the downside is that you take dilution, right? So at that point, you know, I, I now was in a minority position. I wasn't calling the shots and I really had a hankering to take what I had learned and do it a third time, <laughs> do it a- again. And so I, I did. I, I left, walked away from, you know, my position, my salary, my, my board seat, everything. And I just started this time initially just me. And uh, then over time, you know, once I felt I had figured out a, a good direction, I, I was smart enough this time to, you know, not launch off and, until I felt like I had at least a, a solution in mind. And so that company really went much more smoothly. Uh, I think I uh, incorporated in 96, spent that year uh, building a team, building a product. We sold one point. Five million bucks worth in '97, nine million bucks worth in '98, eighteen million bucks worth in '99, and went public, kind of at the hot, the height of the whole uh, dot com craze. What 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 did you guys IPO at market cap wise, or what did it? I I think our initial market cap was oh maybe three hundred million or so. And within a few months, we went public at uh, 13 bucks a share. Within a few months, we were trading at 54 uh, bucks a share. At that point, the company's market cap was three quarters of a billion dollars. But, you know, this is roughly 2000. We were losing money hand over fist. I didn't sell any stock because I just didn't feel like it was right. You know, I didn't feel like that that uh, valuation was was justified. And so I kind of wrote it up to to uh, 54 bucks a share and then the whole dot com crash hit and uh, over the course of the next two or three years the price went down to under 2 bucks per so it was a, an amazing roller coaster very stressful for everybody involved certainly for for me but we kind of hung in and that that's the company i ended up selling for 1.4 billion dollars in 2016 and the name of that one interactive intelligence and what was the what was the main offering I, I customer service offering. So automating customer service for big companies, universities. We uh, ended up having about 2,200 uh, employees and offices around the globe. So it was it was a, a great ride, a lot of fun. And when you say automating customer service, what's an yeah. example? Is this like chat bots and stuff like that, or what is not, it? Not not then. I mean, this was. I mean, I I. Chatbots are kind of a, a more recent innovation, but really trying to offer, you know, voice use voice over IP, which was uh, new at the, the time, and audio, video for uh, customer service. You know, so really trying to empower uh, customer service reps with the knowledge base materials, you know, everything that they needed to try to resolve customer issues quickly. It is fascinating to me how much. I feel like video is still underestimated. Yeah. It's it's got to be the highest form of evoking human emotion. Yeah. Like the ability to simulate real life and then duplicate it. You know, I know we consume so much video and so much YouTube and all this stuff, but it still feels like there's so many organizations. Uh, consulting firm I used to work for, that I was a client of at our private equity fund. Then I went to work for him for a couple of years and still friends. I was having lunch with the CEO yesterday. And he told me the pandemic basically put them out of business in 48 hours because 100% of their clients canceled all their in-person training. Wow. And laying off people and, I mean, pandemonium. 
But they re- they retooled everything, and now they he feels like they've got an actually significantly better offering than the previous thirty years, and so driven by consistency in the story and making sure that the right message gets delivered and combining like in-person work groups plus knowing that the delivery was perfect because it's that video you can just push play on again and yeah it just was like once again like why do we keep learning this lesson over and over why why do people keep why don't we think of video right off the bat well i i think especially in environments where you're trying to establish a relationship with somebody you know human beings we're uh, exquisitely evolved to be able to read people's faces and emotions. And so when you just have an audio connection, you lose all that. And I, th- I think you're exactly right that uh, video is uh, underutilized, but it's a powerful tool. Especially customer service. You yeah. know, I don't know if you know this book, They Ask You Answer, Marcus no. Sheridan. He, I'll get you a copy. It's great. It's this guy who was going out of business during 2008. He had a, they put pools in people's backyards. Okay. Uh-huh. And he's like, one last ditch. I was reading about inbound marketing. He's like, I'm just going to make a blog post for every question I've ever been answered. I've ever been asked on a, on a sales pitch, but I'm going to like not do it salesy. I'm going to explain it like it would be to my mom. Uh-huh. Right. And now his new version is turn all those into videos. And from being like, you know, I mean, this is kind of like a main street business. Hey, we're, we're your pool guy, right? We'll do pool construction. He becomes the number one traffic pool website in the world. Six, wow. 650,000 visitors a month. Wow. It ends up teaching people all over the world this thing for the last dozen years. And it's fascinating just like, again, back to simplicity of like, answer every question they could possibly have. Don't tell them they've got to call your salesperson. Yeah. And let them feel comfortable. So by the time they're calling you, they're actually just calling you with the order. Right. <laughs> right instead of all this back and forth and how many times have we not called somebody because they're like oh that's probably expensive they didn't list the price that's probably too expensive right uh, it's it's so true and it, this is a message that i preach to my team you know as we develop products my mantra is we want to make it so that people don't have to talk to a salesperson if they don't want to i i just I'm stunned at the number of websites where the call to action is talk to a salesperson. Enter a bunch of information, talk to a salesperson. You know, nothing about pricing, so you have no idea. And uh, I think we're just in an era where transparency is required. People are, are used to it. You know, we're so conditioned by our experiences with Amazon and Apple and companies like that. There just seems a relic from a bygone era to go to a website and have the call to action be, you know, put in your information and a salesperson will get back in touch with you. <laughs> Sometimes I almost feel like it's like extortion. It's like, hey, listen. You know the price. I know you know the price. And even if the price is, it depends. You could tell me what it depends on. Absolutely. And what type of range? Like, are we talking fifty grand or five hundred grand? Yeah. Or like, like what? Who, you know, yeah, like give what, me an order of magnitude so I know if I should even waste my time yeah. further on this. And like, like you've just trained me to think. Oh, there's going to be some high pressure guy on the other end of this line. I'm yeah. going to have to fortify myself to get that little bit of information. Yeah. Waiting through somebody pretending to be my friend. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I talked to the CEO of uh, a company called Zendesk uh, years ago before they were uh, a public company. And uh, I was just so stunned and envious because he said they had a thousand customers before they hired a salesperson. And it was because they offered that sort of experience, you know, a, a website that was really easy to navigate and interpret, uh, clear and transparent pricing. Customers could just sign up, kick the tires, self-deploy. And, you know, then later they started adding a sales force for more complex uh, sort of environments. But I, I think that's the ethos that we all want. You know, that's that's what we're all looking for, the sort of experience. We just want to know, you know, what are the benefits? What is the approximate cost going to be? Ideally, let me uh, sign up and kick the tires myself. And then if I need more help, you know, have it available for me. But I'm just a huge believer in that sort of approach. Well, I'm excited to, start to talk about your latest company. But just before we do, I want to go back to this moment of, you decide, hey, I'm going to figure out what we're doing before I ramp up on round three. Yeah. And I think, you know, I look at kind of dozen plus businesses I started and like a couple made a lot of money and the, the other ones were like total catastrophes. <laughs> and I think it's because I didn't have that patience. I didn't do what you're doing. 
There's probably yeah. a, few, a number of elements, but I think that's one of them, right? Oh, that's, that's a big one. And I, I guess for me, the question is, because maybe it's because of some of my catastrophes, I can have that like once bitten, twice shy feeling uh-huh. a little bit, right? Of like, well, I was, I was, I was believing my own, you know, believing my own BS too much last time. Uh-huh. I really got to know this time. So my question for you is, on that third one, what was it of this like, okay, I'm going to do something else. Let's figure out what it is before we ramp up. What was it that gave you the confidence? Okay, I've got it. This is time to ramp up now. Well, you know, for, for me, I was lucky that I was playing in the same industry. So this new company was, again, in customer service. And so I had the benefit of the domain knowledge, you know, that I uh, now felt I understood the problem space. And, you know, it was a, really a matter of, you know, uh, using my technical judgment as to where things were going, what type technologies would uh, be popular, you know, in five years or so looking ahead. And so it was really, once, once I felt like I understood that, I saw a clear path to utilizing technology to be able to leapfrog current competitors. You know, uh, one, one thing I did was bring in a consult to look at what, what we were thinking of doing. And I, I learned the, the dangers uh, of that because the consultant in front of my whole team said, don't do this. You know, there are all sorts of companies, big companies, you know, you're taking on companies like Lucent and, you know, France Telecom and the many companies out there that were uh, in this space. And I, I just said, no, you know, you're looking at the past. I'm looking at the, the future. And so, you know, it was really developing a confidence in kind of my ability to look ahead a few years as to where the technology was going and see how we could make a, a difference and, and leapfrog the current competition. This is a fascinating subject to me. Uh, by the way, that story sounds a little bit like if you ever ask your lawyer, should I start this business? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you could just could tell you, you all could, sorts of reasons you could just skip. not to. <laughs> You yep. could just skip all the legal fees and just yeah. and just write your own answer. No, no, doesn't matter what it is. Um, yep. Okay, <clears throat> to me, the analogy I use for what you just talked about is this balance beam of like, when am I being arrogant and not listening to data, yeah. not listening to my trusted advisors, not whatever, and falling off the balance beam that way, and then when am I falling off the balance beam this way of being overcautious, not trusting that. I'm actually, my job here is to be the visionary, yeah. to be the architect of the future. Like, you know, the guy who invented the laptop says the best way to, to predict the future is to invent it yourself. Yeah. Alan Kay, right? <laughs> I love that. And, and this idea of like, I think all of us entrepreneurs have fallen off either side at different times. Yeah. And so that like, you know, you have this great idea to bring the consultant in and then he tells you this. Yeah. And then like, I, I'm interested for you in how you navigate this like, Am I not listening to the data and my advisors or am I not trusting what my job here is to do? Right. How do you navigate that? I, it is really, really hard. And, you know, I, I, the analogy I, I've used before in you know, talking about kind of the entrepreneurial mindset is that as an entrepreneur, you've got to set a direction and run as hard and fast as you can, you know, once you've made that decision, once you've tried to do as much research and investigation as you can, at some point you just have to trust your gut and then you block everything out. You turn, you know, once that flip is switched, then you've decided, okay, I, I've set my course. I'm not I'm not going to be deterred. I'm not going to listen to any naysayers. And you keep on going. And if you encounter a wall, you, you, know, you bang up against it and try to break through until, you know, you have to have that mindset. But then you've got to, and this is probably the hardest part, you've got to be willing to at some point recognize, I've beaten my head against this wall you know, you know, for, for a while, you know, I'm getting a, a splitting headache and I can see how if I just turn five degrees to the right, I could maybe bypass this worst part of the, the wall. And so it's that sort of schizophrenic attitude where you're totally committed until you're not, 
you know, and then, but it's, it's some judgment that you have to develop as to when it's time to course correct. If you do that too often or too you know, you miss opportunities, you end up yanking your team around, everybody loses confidence. And yet if you don't do it, you can run a business into the ground. So it's a, it's a tough, tough balance to, to strike, but so much of it just comes from deciding what you believe in, what you're trying to accomplish, you know, being true to that uh, mission until it's clear that you, you need to make some sort of course correction. You know, as you're, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about my own history and like what I would consider probably my second largest business failure. And for months leading up to the change, I was going to do like, you know, willpower over facts uh-huh. kind of thing, you know. And then at a certain point, there was like this opportunity for more objective honesty. And I just had this this quote come to mind from Warren Buffett about, you know, he's always saying when you take a industry with a poor reputation and a manager with a great reputation, the industry is typically the one that retains its reputation. Uh-huh. You know, stuff like this. Right? But, but he says, when you find yourself in a leaky boat, Energy is typically better spent finding a new boat than bailing out the one you're in. Yeah, yeah. And it was really, really tough. You know, we were years in. That was a really tough moment for me, but it was an honesty thing, you know? Yep. I don't know if you can... Yeah, it's it. It really is hard. I mean, some you, you do have to do those occasional gut checks. You know, ask yourself that. You know, I just try to reevaluate. You know, I I made this decision. I flipped the switch. I've run hard, but now I need to come up for air a little bit. Look around, and uh, you know, maybe I need to reset my course, or you know, maybe this is the wrong problem that I'm uh, trying to solve. And it's much more of an art than a science. Okay, let's talk about round four. Yeah. So you've got the $1.4 billion success. You, you moved to the promised land here, <laughs> snowshoe heaven here on the side of the mountain park city. What, what's going through your head at this point? Well, you know, I've, I've got eight kids, and my kids unanimous, unanimously were saying, you know, Dad, surely, you know, you're going to hang it up now, right? You're, you're going to retire and just ha- have uh, uh, fun. But I said, kids, you know, I don't golf. I don't sail. I, you know, I'm, I, I have a beautiful house. I don't need a whole lot more. And I don't, I don't know what else I, I would do. And, and plus, I, I had always had misgivings that, you know, I'd started off in the life sciences, taken this detour, built some really nice companies, but none of them specifically in uh, that area. And uh, it had led me oh, a few years ago to freak out my kids one time when I said, I'm enrolling in a master's program in biotechnology at Johns Hopkins. And I was about 60 years old. And I said, Dad, at your age, you know, why would you want to do this? And I said, you know, I, I would just like to have the opportunity to update my knowledge. So much has transpired in the intervening years. You know, the Human Genome Project, so many things. And so I enrolled and just had a blast. This was while I was running a public company. You know, so I would go to Australia and, you know, present at some conference and go home to my, uh, go back to my hotel and take a a test on molecular biology or something. But I just, it rekindled my passion for the the life sciences. So when uh, we had the exit, you know, and I I walked away, I was still the largest individual shareholder. I did two things. Uh, One, I gave uh, 30 million bucks to my alma mater, the Indiana University School of Medicine, to start an immunotherapy center. And as much as anything to really demonstrate to my kids that my life is not about money, it's never been uh, about money, and so this is an opportunity to do something that hopefully does uh, some good, but but also maybe out of a lack of uh, imagination to start another company. So I, I did that. I started a, a company uh, called uh, Lifomic, and uh, we're now up to about 110 employees or so. So I've been poking around the website. By the way, great design, great web design. But for, for everybody, what is the website if they want to check it out? Uh, just uh, lifeomic.com. Okay. So tell me what, let's give people the premise. Let's start there. Give people the premise of what you guys are doing. Okay. Well, that's a bit of a story. So we started off, we we did a little bit of a pivot there. We started off thinking that we were going to do genetic testing. 
So uh, we bought a couple of million-dollar DNA sequencers, whole genome sequencers. We originally were going to set up a CLIA-certified lab to do uh, genetic testing. Uh, and as part of it, we realized every genetic test generated about 100 gigabytes worth of uh, data, and we needed a software platform to deal with this data. And that's what we knew how to do. I mean, that's my, my several people had joined me f uh, from my last company. And so we, we sold the sequencers, gave them to uh, the School of Medicine, and just concentrated on building what they needed for a big cancer project they had going on, which was a cloud platform that could aggregate all patient information. So everything from old school electronic medical records to the fancy new omics, these big data sets, what's called a germline DNA sequence that patients were born with, and then the what's called the somatic DNA sequence of the cancer, and then to analyze the difference between those in order to identify the mutations driving the cancer, and especially to help the researchers and oncologists to give personalized treatments to patients rather than just, you know, old school chemo, you know, super toxic chemo drugs, more tailored therapies that are coming into vogue these days. So that, that was the initial thrust. Cloud platform still in use by uh, the School of Medicine, by Indiana University Health. We're actually working with the University of Utah out here. And uh, so that, that was the initial focus of the, the business, this big enterprise grade, super scalable cloud platform. And that I'm happy to kind of go on from there, unless you've got any questions about that one. So, so you could, hopefully you can kind of see that that that's you know this kind of enterprise grade solution. We went through rapidly through the alphabet soup of security des designations, HIPAA, HITRA, SOC two, and more recently the federal FedRAMP certification, which is a, a really tough one. But uh, almost for fun, along the way, I asked my team to build a mobile. And I go, Don, what has this got to do with the rest of our business? And I said, this, you know, this is just for fun. You know, something that I had become passionate about, actually, during my studies at Johns Hopkins, was the practice of intermittent fat. I had probably read 100 research papers, went down the rabbit hole, understanding the whole molecular signaling pathway. And I just became a huge believer. My kids and I started fasting. We'd be texting, testing, texting each other, showing pictures of what we were doing to break the fast. And I thought it'd be fun to have a little mobile app that would uh, do this. And uh, my excuse to my team was that maybe we'll get five or 10,000 people who use this little app, they will be providing us free load testing because that mobile app will use our cloud platform as the back end for account management and you know data storage and everything. And uh, it's, you know, one of those, I think you've experienced something similar, you know, one of those unexpected successes, you know, where you have low expectations, you know, five or 10,000 users. We recently are coming up on or have passed 4 million uh, downloads. So it's just been incredible to see the adoption around the world. And we've got groups using our uh, our products in the Philippines and Kenya, you know, huge numbers of users in Brazil. It's just been uh, amazing. And so it left us in this situation where we have these two very different assets. We've got this cloud platform, and then we've got this mobile app. And so what we decided, we spent about a year uh, trying to really understand what are the simple behaviors, the simple dimensions of behavior that people can use to improve their health and maximize longevity. And uh, so we've uh, settled on what we refer to as the five pillars of health. And, you know, some of them are, are pretty obvious. So nutrition and maximizing consumption, especially of healthy plant exercise, mindfulness. So just stress reduction techniques, sleep, you know, which in modern years and recent years we've come to realize uh, is so, so important. And then intermittent fasting, this notion of flipping the metabolic switch between burning sugar, which is our normal mode, unfortunately for most of us, to burning fat and forcing our body to make that flip. And it turns out they're just tremendous uh, health benefits. So 
we, we built a successor app, and then what we've done is to combine the cloud platform and the app into a next-generation kind of medical-grade corporate wellness offering that we launched this year, and now we've got several hundred companies around the country using that. That's exciting. Um, so my first question is, There's other folks in very related spaces, and certainly corporate wellness is something that has has become a much bigger topic of topic of discussion and on people's mind. And the pandemic has made all sorts of companies pay more attention to what's going on in their employees' lives, and all sorts of things are shifting. Right. What would you say is distinctly different about your offerings versus the competitors out there? Well, you know the current uh, corporate wellness offerings are pretty trivial, unfortunately. They're pretty uh, lightweight. It's basically, you know, I have a kickoff, measure blood pressure, give everybody a balloon and a donut, and, uh, you know, by uh, the end of January, everybody's forgotten all about it. And what we wanted to do was to build something that was medical grade. So our offering is using that cancer platform. So it's a, it's a very serious sort of a foundation that we could build on. And then what we do is we worked out a blood testing deal with Quest so that employees can uh, go into any Quest center and for 100 bucks uh, measure 72 different biomarkers looking at everything from inflammation to insulin sensitivity, and then also incorporating genetics. So employees can upload results from 23andMe or other sorts of genetic testing providers. And then that sum of information we can use to provide very scientific and personalized recommendations so we can say, yes, yeah, yeah, you know, you got, you got dealt a bad hand. You got a copy of the E4 version of the APOE gene from both of your parents. And that means you're at super high risk of developing Alzheimer's over the course of your life. But if you adopt these behaviors, you can reduce that risk. And it might be that somebody else can smoke on the weekends and drink and, you know, carry a few extra pounds and, you know, eat McDonald's every day. But yes, buddy, you know, that with the genetic hand you've been dealt, you've got to stay lean. You've got to eat well. You've got to, you know, hear the specific things that you need to do. And then here are some of the, the like, blood tests that you need to do periodically to uh, monitor uh, your risk. So I so that's the 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 real difference. It's a very scientifically informed medical grade sort of uh, program that uh, helps reduce risk and even reverse type two diabetes and some of these other chronic disorders that our society is in increasingly struggling with. What I think is so exciting about that is you know. Look at what percentage of the world has a smartphone now. Yeah. You think about the capacity for improving quality of life all over the place. It's it's actually like really optimistic for humanity. Yep. It's it's really exciting, you know, the sorts of things that are available to us today, the measurement devices. So as part of this program, we recommend companies can have this in office locations or send them out to employees. You know, uh, we've got a little physiology kit. I'm pointing over here to, you know, a little wireless blood pressure device. We've got a little spirometry, spirometry uh, device to measure uh, lung volumes. Uh, hand dynamometer to measure grip strength. So there are very simple things that pieces of, of information that we can collect that really give us a lot of information about your current state of health and especially what you can do to improve it. And and is there an individual offering that can individuals go to the app store and just do it themselves or? Well, so that's uh, that's kind of the, the the last piece that I'll mention. So you know, we we have this high end you know cloud platform for cancer and other uh, chronic diseases. Then the mobile app with the wellness offering for corporations. Anybody can download the the mobile app. As I mentioned, we've got four million people who have downloaded the app itself. But then what we did this year was to work with we put put together kind of a steering committee of leading clinicians. So an endocrinologist, a cardiologist, an immunologist, cancer oncologist. And we uh, created uh, what I kind of refer to as a noom on steroids. 
Uh, so if you're familiar with Noom, it's a subscription weight loss service that's uh, uh, become really popular. What we did was build a, kind of a, a, a medical-grade health improvement program for individuals. We're launching this January 1st. And so you, know, you sign up, it costs 200 bucks for over the course of the, the year. Uh, you can do the, the blood test that I mentioned, get a home physiology kit. And what we do is the, the first month, we collect all the data about you and kind of get you enrolled in the program. And then month by month after that, we lead you through this anatomical odyssey. So there's the uh, next month is devoted to your metabolism. So we've got a Harvard-trained endocrinologist who uh, is the curator, kind of the face of that program. And so on your phone, every day, you get a number of little videos and, and lessons, and then we give you uh, kind of a, a little behavioral prescription. We want you to do these exercises. We want you to try to eat these foods. We want you, we gradually introduce you to breathing and pranayama and meditation. You know, uh, we work in the practice of uh, intermittent fasting. And so month by month from metabolism to cardiovascular system to the brain and cerebrovascular system, all the way on up through uh, cancer immunology and then concluding in healthy, healthy aging. We have this program for individuals you know, to try to certainly get them to a healthy weight, you know, which is an important part of any sort of health improvement program, but far more to reduce their risk of cancer, Alzheimer's, and you know, all uh, these uh, chronic diseases. Man, it seems like people's health insurance should like reimburse them for that. That seems like such a benefit to the insurance company if your if your clients would do that. Well, we we certainly hope that ultimately uh, it leads to uh, that sort of outcome. You know, we're really excited about collecting the data. We've we're about to publish a paper based upon the results just of users of our app. So not even going through this highly prescriptive sort of program, but just the casual users of our apps, we're just seeing stunning results. You know, sustainable weight loss for people over the course of an entire year, improvements in uh, insulin sensitivity, decreases in inflammation, you know, all these sorts of things. So as I say, we're publishing a, a paper on, on that and really excited to see, you know, what impact uh, this sort of program can have on uh, public health and yeah we would love that outcome and i think you're right that insurance companies healthcare providers others you know i, I think if we can show efficacy we can start to get these sorts of programs reimbursed so if people want to find out more about this the website's probably the best place well, for the personal improvement program, it's called Life Ascent, uh, A-S-C-E-N-T. So you can go to lifeascent.io. The uh, corporate wellness uh, program is called Precision Wellness, and the site is precisionwellness.io. Okay. Well, I think the next question I want to ask is, you think about how many people have good intentions and want to be a successful entrepreneur and how many people are interested in tech and how few have accomplished what you've accomplished. What do you think you've done differently? What do you attribute some of the success to? Well, I, first, I, I want to acknowledge there's a fair amount of luck involved, right? So I, I, I don't want to portray maybe what I might have thought at one point, that I, you know, I, that I had the Midas touch, that I was just some genius. You know, and unfortunately, inevitably, you know, some of it is being in the right place at the right time. But, you know, luck uh, favors the prepared mind, as I think uh, Fleming, the discoverer of uh, penicillin, said. And so, you know, there is that aspect that, you know, taking the time to understand a problem, understand uh, a domain, you know, thinking about how technology can be used to satisfy the, the need, solve the, the problem. But I, I'd say for me, the biggest thing has been being able to assemble great teams of people and motivate them, you know, convince them that what we're trying to do is something worthy um, and, you know, worthy of their time, their lives, you know, on, on some level. And I think more than anything, I'm proud 
proudest of just being able to do that, being able to assemble teams of really, really good people, motivate them to solve a, a problem, you know, try to just, you know, be a cheerleader and a, a goat herder or, what, you know, whatever is required, you know, demonstrating that I'm, you know, I'm willing to do anything. I've, I've told my salespeople throughout my career, if, if it takes me going to uh, a customer's house and washing their car, you know, to close a deal, give me the soap bucket, you know, and point me in the right direction. And then, so demonstrating that sort of attitude for for every so th- those would be the things I would point to. You know, I think I'm a real book nerd. I love my audiobooks, okay. And one of my favorites in the last number of years is the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings' book, No Rules Rules. Uh-huh. And he kind of takes like the tired old analogy of treating business like a sports team. And puts a new spin on it and really goes deeper into this idea of... Have you read the book already? No. Okay, no, it's great. You'd, you'd like up. it. But he, he takes the idea of a pro sports team uh-huh. more seriously. Actually, it was his, his head of people, Patty McCord, that brought it to him. She's got a great book called Powerful, very similar aspects. But this idea of like, you know, what if we treated... Like, if you want to be a high-performance company, and some people are just bureaucracies and not everybody's looking for... Yeah. Top of the top, high performance, and that's that's different, right? But if you want to be the high performance folks, what if you treated it like a pro athlete team where you pay whatever it takes to get the absolute top person? Yeah, and you know maybe the like the the people who are in more regular functions, you just pay average plus a little bit. Yeah. But like in their case, if we really think this this gal can win us an Oscar, we'll pay what it takes to yeah. get her, including not hiring two other people. So that we can pay her a triple salary because she's actually worth 20 people yep. because she can win an Oscar kind of thing, right? Well, that's something I, I learned early in my career. And I, I was always uh, struck by uh, a study out of IBM years ago. They looked at the productivity of software developers. And they, they just wondered how much of a spread is there you know, between the average and the best. You know, is the best person 50% you know, better than the average or maybe twice as good? What they found was the best person was 10 times better. And so it speaks to exactly that. So you think about that. If the best person is 10 times better, if you pay them three times the average, you're, it's a bargain, Right. And so you're absolutely right. And it's just I've learned that over and over in my career that you do want to sacrifice. You want to cut corners other places. And, you know, you can't maybe hire the that sort that caliber of person in every position. But, you know, you really try to be strategic about it and where it really, really matters. Yes. You know, you pay through the nose, you do what it takes and you really work to especially retain people like that. You know, I my last interview was the CEO of the Society for HR Management. Uh-huh. He's got like 300,000 HR professionals across the world, you know, and we were having the same conversation. He, it really made me think, you know, there's a t- lot of tough things about being a startup or being a smaller business when you're going up against the Microsofts of the world or the, you know, the big bureaucracies that have huge, deep pockets, right? Yeah. But one of the things that, you have an advantage is the ability to make this choice. And he just said like how he has this conversation with these top HR professionals of like, who cares about your salary band? Are you trying to win or not? (laughs) You know? Oh, it's it's such a, a great point because it's so easy to get caught up in the bureaucracy you know, in uh, those sorts of formalisms and lose sight of, w- of what you're trying to achieve, which, you know, ultimately is, is to win. And, you know, for a startup, winning is about survival. You know, if you don't, if you don't win, you die. You know, it's, uh, it's a, a pretty stark set of choices. So it's so important to keep everybody, you know, to keep reminding yourself as a, as a leader and everybody in the company that your objective isn't just to hit, you know, key performance indicators or anything like that. Those are useful, you know, but ultimately it's about trying to achieve your uh, overall business objectives. Makes me think about that Michael Lewis book, Moneyball, you know, that had Brad Pitt in the movie, right? And it's like, you know, he's not trying to be the coach. He's not trying to be the player. He's trying to make sure that he's got the best coach and players to go try and win the World Series, right? Yep. So when you think about the successes you had in getting superstars to want to choose your organizations, what insights do you have for the rest of us? 
Well, you know, I... I think it, it it starts, I mean, you know, this has been said before, but you know, the idea of a bag, a big, hairy, audacious goal, you know, good people want to make a difference in their lives. You know, they're conscious of the fact that they've got, you know, a limited career, you know, especially in the technical field, many, most people can go off and make money any place. So, but you do have to offer, you know, competitive wages, but more than anything, you've got to inspire them that what you're doing is worthwhile, you know, it's it's worth uh, this investment of their lives, and so I, for me, that's by far the the biggest. Th- the other uh, thing I really try to do is just celebrate every success. I think one of the most damaging things for people is to work hard, do do good things, and have nobody notice. Right? It's just tremendously uh, demotivating. I had, I remember a developer actually who came from I, from IBM. He had worked at IBM for 25 years. He came to uh, work at my last company, did a project. We uh, released his code and he came to me and he said, Don, that's the first time in my career something I've developed ever made it to market. At IBM, they kept canceling projects so you can imagine what that does to you psychologically, that you put your heart and soul into something and it just gets mothballed. And so I'm just really always trying. One little stratagem that I've used through the years is everybody in the company, including me, files a weekly status report. So we, we uh, use Slack and we've got a Slack channel and it's just a little bullet list for everybody every week. I read every single one every single week. I did this at my last company with 2,000 people. I'm skimming, you know. But it was great because, you know, there might, might be somebody, you know, I remember times where somebody in Australia, you know, filed a status report and they get an email from me saying, you know, great job, you know, I'm so happy about that. And by the way, you know, what you did, you should probably talk to, you know, this guy over in Brazil, you know, who needs something similar. And so to have somebody in leadership, you know, commenting on it and whether it's, it doesn't have to be sexy, you know, documentation, testing, you know, any, any area, but, you know, really trying to bring accomplishments to light and celebrate, you know, everything along the way, you know, obviously there are big moments when you go public or, you know, get a million dollar sale. Those are great, but you want to celebrate those little bitty victories along the way too. I love that you gave us a concrete example. And I love that it wasn't like we make sure that everybody gets a birthday cake and that everyone gets invited so they can feel like people care about their birthday. Get newsflash. Those those employees that have never met this individual don't care it's their birthday. Yeah. Right. And like I, I've I think about pushback on this subject that I've heard from other founders and CEOs about well, like I kind of expect them to do their job. Like, do I need to have a second job of making them feel special for doing like what's in their job description and versus what you are talking about of this like genuine recognition for genuine contribution that is going to feel genuine. Right. That is like rocket fuel versus like, Oh, think up what's something nice. Everybody can say about Nancy this week. <laughs> right. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've resisted things like employee of the month and you know, the, those sorts of things. I've never really wanted to single out uh, any uh, individual person. And those, those things just feel fake to me. But to you know, express genuine excitement over something that somebody is uh, doing you know, on a very personal level, I've found it to be uh, tremendously uh, beneficial. And, uh, you know, and people reciprocate. I file a status report every week. And so to get people giving me an attaboy, you know, good job, Don, you know, it, it's wonderful for me too. So it, it cuts both ways. It just creates this culture. And we, we really work hard to create a, a no-blame culture. So if something breaks, we have a post-mortem, but it's blame-free. We just want to improve. So we, we want to understand, you know, any, any problem, any misstep, but we're not going to castigate somebody. We're not going to punish anybody. We're not going to humiliate them. Our attitude is we all make mistakes. We're human beings, but we just want to learn from them and get better. Design the kind of system where it's not going to happen again. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, I can see how this would tie into what you talked about 
you know, great recruiting and great motivation. What's another thing you do for motivation? Well, you know, one thing that has become a kind of an accidental tradition for us, you and I were talking earlier about uh, this beautiful national forest we've got close by called the Uintas. And uh, what we do now, we did it back in September uh, this year, we bring the whole company out here and we camp for a week at uh, 10,000 feet. We go rock climbing, hiking, you know, peak bagging, but we have more chill activities, you know, mushroom hunting and archery and paddle boarding on the, on the lakes. But we just get everybody together away from everything. There's no business meetings. There's no corporate rah-rah. There's no speeches. Just sitting around a campfire as human beings, you know, trying to to exist out in the wilderness at uh, 10,000 feet, you know, hiking everything in on our backs. We do hire a wonderful guide service uh, here locally that they bring in a full field kitchen, so we eat and drink really, really well. But it's just a wonderful bonding experience, especially, you know, in the last couple of years with COVID, it's just people hunger for that uh, human connection. So it's just, I can't tell you how wonderful it's been. It's it's expensive to fly people in. It's expensive, you know, to put on something like this. But it's just become a tremendous part of our culture that everybody really participates, really appreciates. And now what we're starting to do is even invite in outside people, uh, outside medical experts. And it's kind of a nice way to introduce them in a completely non-salesy way to the company. But it it really creates friendships and and, uh, relationships. And I, I just wouldn't give it up for the world. Uh, it makes total sense. I, I can tell you, I'm like, that sounds like a party. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I kind of want to go back to one of the things that you said about attracting top talent. Uh-huh. Th- this has been something I've been thinking about so much lately. And this idea of like, you're right, the best people want to do something awesome. Yeah. And this idea of like, what is your big, hairy, audacious goal? Yep. And like, I feel like so often the advice I get from non-entrepreneurs, non-founders is about like, it's about compensation and it's about the perks and it's about kind of like the logistics of life. Yeah. And as soon as you said that, I thought, yeah, that inspiration, like get the adrenaline going, get the like, that's those, those absolutely like Michael Jordan's of their space. That's what they're looking for. That's why they're doing what they're doing. That's why they're so passionate what they did that they practiced harder than everyone else. And they got so good. Yeah. It just, it felt so obvious, but I don't know that I had really, I think that that's a much bigger part of the picture than I had been thinking until you said it. I I really think so. And especially uh, in the tech space, you know, there are just so many opportunities out there. People can go any place. And so you really do have to convince them that what, what you're doing is worthwhile. And it doesn't have to be curing cancer. I mean, that's Believe me, that's wonderful. And, you know, we a few months ago, we brought in an oncologist to talk to our team during a roundtable and had, I think, everybody crying, talking about specific cases of little kids and cancer, you know, where they had been able to find actionable mutations using our software. And so it just gives everybody a sense of, oh, my God, you know, this is not just a job. This is impacting people's lives. But I I think the same sort of approach can be applied to a customer service company. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, something, you know, totally altruistic or life-saving, but making it, explaining how what you do is making a difference, you know, is help serving society, you know, uh, customer service, you know, we had, we had, hospitals, universities, you know, really not profits, really wonderful organizations. And so we could show how we are, yes, you're working on customer service, which may not seem like the sexiest thing in the world, but it's being used by the American Cancer Society, you know, to, to solve something. And so I, I really think you can, you, even in fairly mundane sorts of areas, you can still show, your, show people how what they're doing is making a difference on some larger scale. You know, I, I love it so much. I've, I've just been sitting here thinking, like, what would ours be? You know, and I, I think that at Greystoke Investments, ours would be like that finance, like investing doesn't have to be so boring. It doesn't have to be so stodgy. You don't need to, you don't need to be treated like a dummy because you didn't 
work at Goldman Sachs after you graduated from Harvard. Like, you know, the, the, there's so much in the finance industry that's like, they, they use complicated words when they use simple words because they want us to feel inadequate enough that we have to pay their fees, yep. you know? And I'm like, I want to create the Red Bull of investments. Like, hey, we want to, like, our purpose is to finance your next, your next adventure. Yeah. Right? And, like, like, have our content be about adventure and, and attract not just investors who are into the adventure lifestyle and action sports, but have our staff. You know, like work harder that our staff are the people who want to live that lifestyle. And then like we were talking about the videos and the websites, like explain absolutely everything on our website and in like plain English with videos where people can like get self-educated and realize like, oh, you're just you're just making like super artistic Airbnbs that have their own mountain bike track and it rents for this much. And so we make this much in our quarterly check, like, you know, and just like go the exact opposite direction of Wall Street. Yeah. And go like, hey, if you want to be a part of completely shaking up how real estate investments are sold, we like we want to be like the rebellious snowboarders of the nineties. <laughs> like I something like that. You it's know? brilliant. I think that's a, that's exactly right. It's you know, getting people excited about the the mission, you know, casting it in terms that you know that they can understand or they can relate to and feel like they're doing something special. Yeah. Listen, this has been great for me. Thank you for doing this. Let's get let's do the websites again. So, okay. so the main corporate website is lifeomic.com. And then the other two that I mentioned are precisionwellness.io for, for the corporate the, for the corporate wellness. And then lifeascent.io for the personal subscription wellness program that'll be launching January first. Yeah. Okay, as we wrap up here, I try I try not to have the same questions. I try to have conversations with people. But there's one question I ask tons of folks because I get such good answers. What's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? Oh, you know, probably the for for me and, you know, you know sometimes these these things seem uh, trivial, but I I, I I was probably about 40 years old and working like a demon, you know, uh, 80 hours a, a week, sleeping bag literally in my office. Uh, I was carrying probably 20 pounds more blubber than uh, what I, I have today because I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't working out. And I, I had somebody tell me something like, you can you can fool yourself into thinking the things that you want to do to improve your your life that there's going to come a time in the future when all that's going to become possible and you can wait for a day that never comes and that it's it's all an illusion and what you have to do is to decide today you know what's important and it it just I mean, it seems so trivial in retrospect, but it really just shook me up. And I I identified so much with that that I'm thinking, well, next quarter, you know, next year, after we get this project done, then, boy, I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to start paying more attention to my kids, you know, when, when this comes. And it just hit me that I can't do that, that I've got to decide today. And so it just changed my approach to, to life. I start off every day asking myself, what's really important today? Do my kids have something, an event in their lives that's important to them? You know, they don't expect me to be there for, you know, everything, but they do expect me to be there for the big things. And so, you know, really more, the, more of that than everything. Every day, asking yourself, what's really important? When I lie down tonight and I'm reflecting on what I did today, what's going to make me feel good? You know, calling my, my sister or, you know, doing something for one of my kids or, you know, accomplishing something important at, at work. Because it's just so easy to fall into the inbox trap, right, where we just... You know, whatever is there, we, we let that uh, drive our priorities, and uh, you can really just waste tremendous amount of, amounts of time uh, if you don't really just take a few moments. And I'm a, I'm a compulsive list maker, right? So I start off every day making a list. What are the things? It, you know, one thing is how am I going to work out? You know, am I going to go rock climbing in the gym? I'm going to do a hike. What am I going to do, you know, for, for myself, for my own health? What am I going to do that my kids uh, need today? 
And then what are the most important, you know, business or, or other personal things that I'm going to do? And so I, for, for me, that's the best advice I ever got. I feel like we need another hour. Let's do a podcast <laughs> about that. that. That's such a great answer. That should be a book. That's a great answer. Well, I, I'm speaking of a book. I, I have written a book that'll be published in, in January. It's a kind of a geeky uh, book called Understanding Life that covers kind of the, the development of, of life on this planet, but then leading into what it means for our health and what we can do, kind of the stress response pathways that we can activate through things like exercise and you know, plant-based nutrition and practices like intermittent fasting. Okay. Well, what website? Because people are going to be listening to this. We have people listen to shows, the shows from five years ago. So people are going to be listening to this long past January. Where? What's the website? Where do they find that book? When well, that- it'll be a list on Amazon. That'll be the easiest thing. So just called Understanding Life by Don Brown. Okay. That's great. Actually, what date in January? Let's have this episode come out after that's out so everybody I, listening can I, check I, You it know, out. I've lost track, but it's uh, right around January 15th, something like that. Okay. Let's, we'll save this episode so it'll come okay, out after that. Okay, cool. Okay. Open floor, any soapbox item. What, what's something that people don't ask you about enough? Or what's, what's something important to you that we haven't covered today? <laughs> that's a, that's a, a, big, uh, a big question. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, I guess for, for me, and, and I, you know, this is what, something I try to cover in the, the book. You know, for, for us as human beings, we are built for for stressful things we're built for challenges and you know i'm I'm just inspired to think of our ancestors that walked out of africa you know and spread all over this planet and to think about what they had to endure you know crossing mountains and deserts you know going without food for for days i i remember i had a a a lady email me about our intermittent fasting app and saying you know it's dangerous to drive without uh, eating breakfast and i thought you know lady <laughs> Our ancestors had to do far greater things than skip an Egg McMuffin, you know, as they were, you know, crossing the, the globe. And, you know, it's just striking to me how challenges make us. It's so, you know, what we're finding is exposure to cold, heat, you know, uh, uh, hypoxia at altitude, that within a, a range there, these minor stresses are really good for us. You know, the the old adage, "What doesn't uh, kill you makes uh, you stronger," is is really true. And the the converse is that settling back into our rocking chairs, you know, being at uh, humidity controls seventy two degrees, boxes of cookies, you know, so that you're eating pretty much round the clock. That's what's really damaging and, and ultimately kills us. It hurts our health. It saps us of our, our vitality. And so, you know, I would just encourage everybody, you know, think about, you know, take risk, you know, do things, you know, maybe not crazy and dangerous, but push yourself. You know, if it's cold, you know, and you'd rather not go outside, go ahead, you know, hike in the rain, you know, walk in the snow, you know, do these things and it's, you'll, you'll be happier and healthier as a result. It's funny how much I hate starting those things and then how happy I am that I did them when I do them. I, I, I think we all have, have the same reaction. You know, it, it really, it's, it's what we were made for. It's what we were, we're designed for, you know, not to just uh, settle into uh, comfort, but to challenge ourselves. You know, we're explorers by nature as uh, human beings. And I, I think it's a, a shame when we lose sight of that. That's great. Thanks for thanks for making so much time today. This has oh, been great. My, my pleasure. It's been fun. Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening.